Welcome to a Sunday recording of the Weekend Sports Cars and the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, brought to you by our English brother, Graham Goodwin, also brought to you by my cat Rocky, who is sitting to the left, just trying to be very foreboding, hoping I'll get tired of looking at him and feed him uh, while uh, while his sister is somewhere in the house acting a fool and my wife is uh, I believe just enjoying not having cats and a husband bothering her <laughs> uh, well first things first Merry Christmas and this is going to be a bit different isn't it MP um, and in in recognition of the fact that we all would like a little bit of downtime and in recognition of the fact too that we, uh, we have this awesome set of listeners that always send in way too many questions for us to cover off in a regular episode we're going to split this one, a bit of a Christmas special, uh, in two. And also, by the way, in recognition of that awesome news you got from Podbeam this week. Yeah. Hey, look at that. We <laughs> we learned via a really nice email or someone who crafted a fake email just to give me something <laughs> to talk about that isn't real, that our uh, little MP podcast uh, ranked in the top 10 of all podcasts hosted by Podbean. And Podbean is one of the world's largest, most prominent podcast hosts, which is a pretty cool thing as well. Frankly, the reason that I chose them, Graham, because while they were cheaper and maybe some others that had other options that might have been slightly better, I'm a big fan of if you're going to invest in something like this and expect it to last for a while, you're going to want something, an organization that is more institutional than fly by night. So they host massive podcasts for a lot of entities. Ours being one of the smallest, but nonetheless got a nice email on Tuesday or Wednesday saying that our podcast ranks within the top 10 of all sports podcasts for 2019. And they also mentioned that they host a total of 320,000 podcasts across all genres. So I don't know what that means for us, but I do know that I really appreciate you and all of our listeners that help create this opportunity for us. Well, I did see a response to that. And uh, first and foremost, congratulations, mate. You've been the driving force behind this. I'm happy to be a bit part player and, and no, to help and support week by week. <laughs> but uh, uh, one of our listeners did respond to it and said his understanding is you're not in the top 10. Well, you are, but you're number five of the sports podcasts. I've checked that, and that be true, and that is quite extraordinary. Um, I'm now getting a sore back from all the backslapping we're giving ourselves, so should we kick this one off? We are going to absolutely line up for the kickoff here. You, as the editor of DailySportsCar.com, a mighty fine outlet where your brain gets bigger and smarter with every story, <laughs> You're also the official chooser, the official, what is it? Selecta of the various categories that we cover during our week in Sports Cars listener-driven Q&A show. Where shall we go first, my friend? Well, to explain to those listening to this being part one, we're going to split it 
about an hour and a half of two uh, sections for this Christmas week. Uh, so you'll have plenty of listening pleasure uh, to get away from the relatives or if you're visiting the relatives in the car or wherever else you want to actually play this. We're about 90 minutes for this part of the show. Uh, we're going to kick it off this week because it's the uh, the uh, race meeting we've had most recently with the Rec Aslam's Echo Elms, the WC, Asian Le Mans Series, ACO and ELMS. Uh, because we have got a galaxy of questions there. I might actually, by the way, add in a few that I'm sure we'll get over the next 24 hours before we record part two to do with a response to the uh, Daytona entry list, which we've now seen for the RAW. It won't change very much, although we'll get it populated with drivers for the Rolex 24 hours, 40 cars for that. But I think, MP, we should kick it off this time with the ACO. I love it. That means I get to lob questions in your direction so we are going to do that starting with our man thomas pendergrass says graham isn't the financial commitment for hypercar much higher than imsa's dpi and dpi 2.0 he asks if dpis run with the top class at lamar wc with the hypercars why would anyone build a hypercar not just build a dpi which it could accomplish the same thing at a far cheaper price um, it's a very good question. The answer is yes, I think the price point is higher. Quite how much higher is open to a lot of speculation uh, right now. I've seen some figures that are wildly different from those we've seen quoted, both from some of the manufacturers and indeed from the ACO. I've seen figures quoted at, four, at 60 million. I don't believe those. Do I believe it's as low as 18? No, I don't. Uh, you'd probably be better, um, better averse than me in, in terms of what it costs for a full season without the Le Mans 24 hours MP for a DPI, but it's nor, it's, sorry, it's south of that kind of figure, but not dramatically so in some instances, particularly if you've got, you know, full factory backing and the, the marketing hit that kind of comes with that. So you've got to take into account, I guess, program costs as well as just the technical cost of these things, it really is a matter of what you're asking a manufacturer to commit to that program. Why would they do it? Well, look, this is all about something I know we're going to talk about through the next, but I'm sure both the uh, programs are going to do this week, convergence. What does that mean? What does that word mean? It means the prospect of having, particularly at the biggest races, the opportunity to have hypercars and DPI 2 from 2022 racing on the same potentially extraordinary grid it is i think once in a lifetime opportunity and hugh to words uh, talking to me last week it is the chance of this decade and of the next decade we are not going to get another um it is about getting extraordinary factory back grids at the biggest races and several of those big big races um for the next three to four years at the very least so that's what it's about why would you do it well the answer is we don't really know what the deal is we don't really know whether or not uh you would uh find imsa accepting a hypercar for a full season of them so or the or wc accepting a dpi2 for a full season of wc and if as a manufacturer that's where you believe your marketing base would be and i'll give you a couple of for instances in a moment then that is going to define your choices for instance you tell me uh, mp i don't think peugeot currently market in the u.s do they they do not there you go so if peugeot are interested in marketing their products um, the, the answer is they're going to be interested in doing something with a WEC basis rather than IMSA basis. 
And so it goes on and on and on and on. Toyota, uh, not dissimilarly in some instances, they're interested in a platform that they can take uh, globally. Would they do it with the DPI? Not so sure. They've got a plan. That plan is that the that hypercar is a transitional um, step for them to where they want to be with zero emissions in the next cycle of rules in just under half a decade's time. So again, there, there's a reason behind them selecting it. Aston Martin, very simple. They've got the Valkyrie. The Valkyrie is coming. Most extraordinary uh, road car with a capital R and a capital C-A-R. Um, that probably we've ever seen in terms of its capabilities, that simply doesn't fit within DPI. So there's three very different reasons as to why hypercar might well be the choice for those three. Would there be anybody else in that list? Who knows? Uh, Let's wait and see further down the line here. But uh, certainly convergence right now, a very hot topic. Uh, there are far more people working towards that end than working against it. And I think right now it's an incredibly important and, and really exciting time. There is a moment right now where I sort of want to say to the world of endurance racing, guys, girls, don't mess this one up. There's an opportunity here to achieve something completely extraordinary. And it didn't feel like we were there even three, four months ago. Right now, we're very close, but it's that last 50 meters, that last, you know, that last kind of slice of the cake that needs to be sorted out between the uh, the people responsible for the commercial sides of things, the people responsible for the technical sides of things. But remember where we were, MP, the start of this year, and I think what was one of my soapbox moments, it says, well, if you're going to have a balanced performance and the performance of these cars is as close as it is together between TBI 2.0 and hypercar, then let's have a come one, come all uh, opportunity and let's see a bit of openness on both sides. The changes we've seen, in recent months, particularly, I think, with the changes we've seen at IMSA, creates new opportunities here. New opportunities, new realities, new understandings of where uh, manufacturer programs are and potentially might be in the next year, two years, five years. Bring it on, I say, because I think it could be amazing. It's interesting. I see the last bit as a complete opposite. Uh, IMSA has been in and been involved and been trying to do this for years uh, with Scott Atherton, now former IMSA president, being the person working most directly with the ACO and WEC to try and create common rule, single formula, whatever it might be, some sort of let's work together on a prototype front. We know that that was proposed and taken away uh, by the ACO and WEC at the onset of the DPI formula that started in 2017. We know that at Sebring this year, we were hoping to hear that there was going to be some sort of working together, some sort of convergence, common formula, something that once again went absolutely nowhere. Uh, The level of frustration within IMSA with the French saying, yes, we're interested, and then ultimately reversing course. Uh, I don't disagree in saying that the hope is higher than ever. But this is, we're now in our third instance of trying to make something happen. And at least during the first two failures, we can say that one side 
was the absolute root and cause of those failures. So we obviously hope that that does not continue here a third time. We'll mention that on the budget standpoint, Thomas, it's hard to say what a DPI hypercar budget is from a build standpoint. Every manufacturer can spend whatever amount of money that they want to within, quote, reason. The number I'd look at is the cost to run. So for a manufacturer playing in DPI or hypercar, their budget will be whatever it is in the customer instances. And that's where you start to get real numbers. That's where the class really starts to bulk up. In DPI, we are in the 5 to $6 million a year range per independent entry. That is a very small number to what we would anticipate a similar hypercar entry among independents might be, Graham. Still, at least if we're just talking what's available, what it costs, etc. It's a huge number here. It is very problematic. You can run a full IndyCar season, full IndyCar season, for the same amount as what DPI has become for single entry, again, on an independent level. Would say that if we do have convergence, we would certainly have a situation on the IMSA side where could Acura, Mazda, Cadillac, who knows who else in the near future, decide we're going to run Le Mans. We might do something that has uh, nationality uh, value, for example. You know, if it's a German DPI, could there be here or there? If it's a Japanese, whatever it is, could there be something that gets used on a wet calendar that maybe fits some sort of uh, home front, home country type entry in addition to Le Mans? Sure. I'm just sharing fact here, not supposition. Every DPI manufacturer that I know of right now is facing either a significant budget reduction or, if not a reduction, massive, massive microscope on their expenditures. So the money to go play and do these things, that's where, again, maybe outside of Le Mans, I don't know if Convergence has a real future in this current financial climate. Addendum to that, Graham, I'm just talking here from the North American side. Our national economy is not bad. (laughs) If you look at stock markets and general earning and tax refunds and you name it, many people would suggest that our American economy is not in a bad place at all. So why? Why is there... Why are there budget cuts? Well, well that's a whole separate show. Uh, why are things tighter than ever? Again, that's, that's a separate show. Despite the fact that it would appear that our economy is strong, that still is not being seen or felt on the automotive, manufacturer, motor racing effort side. So it's not as if companies are hurting but they are certainly not willing to throw free amounts of money into their factory racing programs. And I'm just speaking in a very general sense. 
So while I love the idea of convergence, I do think that if it were to happen, and there are hypercar manufacturers, Peugeot maybe being an exception since they don't sell cars here, but I think this might be a case where there'd be more drop-in appearances by hypercar manufacturers to play in IMSA at any events they believe hold great value than the other way around outside of Le Mans. Uh, the budgets here just, I don't foresee them getting bigger anytime soon. So it's a little bit of a, maybe a practical, uh, there's a bit of a BOP <laughs> uh, balance of profits here being applied to this convergence topic that we do need to acknowledge. Love the idea. Just not sure it's going to end up with, ah, and look, Acura is now running dual programs. They're, they're running things in both championships and Cadillac and Mazda and whomever. Not sure how it would change, but I do know there need to be significant changes, Graham, for that to be a, uh, a reality on the entry list in a converged prototype world. I think that's um, a key part of this, isn't it? That one of the things that's been keeping the two camps away from convergence is, is I think, a fear of two, two, three things. Well, one, of, one of two things, really. One is financial reality. Is there budget to actually do both? In very many cases, the answer is no, there isn't. That brings in the concern that a team, a factory, might choose to do the thing that isn't your championship. So why would you facilitate that? Um, I think there are some interesting aspects here as to whether or not you might find other parts of the commercial universe of those brands. The North American brands that are actually backing DPI programs, there is interest in those programs from the marketing departments, etc., of the brands elsewhere. So, for instance, here in the UK, the fine folks at uh, Mazda UK and indeed do publicize the IMSA program. Uh, and do so quite extensively, actually indeed attend some of the IMSA races uh, to do so. So might there be an opportunity for some of the funding for, for instance, Alamon program to come from the importers uh, of the brands in other marketplaces? It's one of, the, one or two of those things that might kind of come to play here. Um, you're right, MP, uh, the prevarication, I think it's been based on a couple of factors. I think it's been based principally on unenlightened self-interest in the past, without a shadow of a doubt. There were some concerns that with Peugeot uh, revealing that they're coming in 2022 uh, to Hypercar, that might kill this stone dead. The interesting thing is it hasn't. And I think it hasn't because I think now we're at a stage where both sides of the coin here have now convinced themselves that there are enough parties involved to sustain full season grids in each, so WC and in IMSA, uh, but the potential there for those grids to come together and effectively um, to make a cake rather better than its ingredients. Uh, am I suggesting we might see 10 factory teams at Le Mans in 2022-23? No, but we might. Um, and I think if there's a prospect that you might get back to that, that is the only way that those events are ever going to see the kind of glory days that we saw at the height of four uh, LMP1 um, hybrid manufacturers in 2015, for instance, with the commercial punch that comes that way. You're not going to see that spend 
but you might see half of it. You might see a third of it from a number of those manufacturers at those big events. I think it's going to be a fascinating few weeks and months, and I think the uh, the telegraph lines are going to be buzzing by the time we get to Daytona at the end of January. The telegraph lines are perking back up. Wow. That's a, that's a wow. That's Carrier a, that's a pigeons back, will be flapping away. <laughs> Oldest lamps. Across yes. the Atlantic. All right. right we have so, – go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, but we got the, there was the, the, the other big news of the week. Uh, I think the, the next series of questions, MP. Yes, hyperbole. We have <laughs> a lot of hyperbole. Yeah, and uh, we have a number of folks who've asked about the announcement of the hyperpole scenario i'll use ryan terpstra's because i think it encapsulates the questions slash statements sent in by our listeners ryan says hyperpole hyperbole i'm actually not sure what the exact meaning of the word is so maybe it's a bad joke here just like the new rules all 60 entries on track at the same time in some sort of convoluted 45 minute knockout qualifying round at least with multiple two-hour sessions there's times where cars may not all try to be out there getting laps in. He says, with a single 45-minute time session, this needs an immediate rethink. Give the prototypes 30 minutes, then give the GT cars 30 minutes. If you want to put the top six in, a, uh, in each class out there at the same time, fine. Uh, it is a big track at Le Mans, but overtaking cars uh, in a slower class hurts lap times, making the whole thing a bit of a traffic roulette what do you think <laughs> what 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 came to mind when you learned of this because i think your reaction might mirror many of our listeners and many sports car fans well you know what probably not um i think there's one reason behind this and one reason only and it's a single word television uh, the reality at the moment is, so for those that aren't familiar with what actually happens at the Le Mans 24 hours for qualifying, we effectively have four two-hour sessions, the first of which for several years has been classified as free practice. The other three, and that is late nights on Wednesday and then early evening and then late nights on Thursday, are all timed qualifying sessions with the potential for all cars to be on track. So uh, effectively what I believe the ACO are doing here, reinventing this so that it can be packaged. Uh, it's a real tricky one. You know, we've discussed this many, many times before on the Week in Sports Cars about how it is you package endurance racing for TV. And it is tricky when you're dealing with sessions and races that are so very lengthy. What I think think they're trying to do here is to provide something that is televisual that is better for the crowds trackside and there are very significant numbers of people trackside even though early in the week i would estimate you know very high five figures uh, before we start getting the really big crowds towards race day uh, but the the reality is that at times there's not a lot going on uh, in terms of track action. So I think what they're, they're trying to do here is to wrestle with exactly the same problems we've seen at the Spa 24 Hours, at the Nürburgring 24 Hours, and come up with a format that suits people trackside, who, let's face it, are paying their euros to come through the gates, and to suit uh, the never-ending appetite of television and live streaming to find something that you can actually get a little bit shouty at behind the mic. Is it my favourite um, of the 
the kind of uh, the formats we've seen previously in qualifying. No, it isn't. Uh, but I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we saw the odd tweak with this. I'm saying that not because I've spoken to anybody that told me so, but that we've seen previously when something radical has been discussed for Le Mans, that they still give themselves a little bit of thinking time um, before finally nailing this thing in. Um, as I say again, is it the worst? No, I suspect it might be reasonably popular trackside. And I can tell you this much, in terms of being able to talk about it into a microphone, what I'm looking at on the page here is a lot more appealing in terms of something where you can build a storyline uh, for listeners and viewers than um, the current format. Current format, you're never really sure whether or not you're going to get anything over a six-hour period or any point in that six-hour period and trying to keep people interested in watching for another 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, hour, two hours can be quite difficult, particularly when you've then got weather into the uh, into the bargain. Uh I think this gives a clear, some clear answers. I think in some ways it's substantially less clear. Um, it does ask, add some risk, I guess, into the, the bargain, which is quite a strange one. But uh, I think we give this one a bit of a shot. We give them a little bit of room. I'm hoping they've done some of the sums behind this. Um, give a little bit of room to see whether or not their grand idea stands or falls. Um, I don't think a race meeting like the Le Mans 24 hours should stand still. I do think we should be looking at uh, what can be done to refresh the format. And I don't think it's the worst idea in the world. My immediate reaction was, what a crazy concept, Graham, to restructure qualifying to place an emphasis on cars going quickly as possible radical thinking where where do they come up with this stuff what's next hold a race to determine who finishes first i mean where is i love the for those who wrote in about this yes the format not only needs tweaks before it's ever taken place i believe it will happen quickly because this change signals a recognition that this is the most underserved portion of the WEC weekend at, frankly, any weekend. Le Mans, it is not Le Mans specific. Uh, I've had this complaint for quite a while. If you have dynamic, fast, amazing, and unique cars, and you have a session dedicated to demonstrating this, the race, whatever the race is, is not always about going the fastest strategy comes into play. So you do not always get the, the highest art form of raw speed. We also know that depending upon the class, you do not have drivers of equal talent, equal speed, uh, or those speeds just being amazing as offered by whichever drivers, especially in the pro-am classes. So this is, this has been a lacking spectacle for quite some time. The we must you must have rotate the drivers through the car and they you average their lap times and all that again. The most fans following motor racing don't want to have to do math, I think I'm safe in saying. So I love the general idea here. I think Graham 
the sooner the ACO and the WC just really distill this down to a shootout mentality. 60 cars on track is not going to produce the fastest speeds. We know, as Ryan mentioned and others mentioned, that traffic will most certainly <laughs> most certainly play a factor in how things work out. So just the, the very basic idea of, hey, friends, if we want to make this awesome and amazing, let's go ahead and do that. We just really need to think about distilling this into the most pure form of what you're trying to do. So maybe it is a 30-minute session. Come one, come all. Go like mad. Go like crazy. And uh, the fastest speeds in each class are that. Or maybe there is a, you know, maybe on Wednesday it's a 60-minute session and you boil that down to 30 minutes or 15 minutes uh, knowing that, again, a lap time, you're not going to have a lot of time to do laps, but maybe it's uh, 15 minutes per class Thursday night to determine, you know, the the super hyperbole poll. I'm not sure, again, there are some tweaks, but I can tell you that Formula One and IndyCar seem to do a pretty darn good job of it. The knockout round mentality, who transfers in, who does what, and you just having sit there and observed these things many times, it does build. There is real excitement. There's holy cow. What's going on? We're tracking. We're seeing who's up, who's down. It builds something that is really special that only adds to the anticipation of what's coming in the race. Seems like they got the premise kind of sort of here, but have not really worked out the, the method to achieve that. And I still like and still prefer the idea of Put your fastest bullet in the car, whomever it is. It's another thing that we struggle to do as much as we once did, and that is reverie. Oh, my goodness. This per- Put this person in a car? Oh, my gosh. We're just going to see insane things. We know that the majority of sports car drivers at a pro level are fearsomely fast, Graham. Oh, yeah. I'd love to work more, though, through this evolving qualifying process to help make more or build a higher level of reverie for those that you know, we maybe have not had a chance to. Who within this certain car, within this team, is the baddest of badasses? Well, the numbers don't lie. Let's strip all the other cars out of the way. Let's, make, let's not make traffic a thing. Let's see what man, woman, and car can do. The ultimate expression of speed for your entertainment. And celebrate speed and heroism behind the wheel. We just don't have that as part of sports car racing for the most part. So, I think for me, I, I don't disagree. I think if you're going to go for the ultimate, let's go for the ultimate. The, the I have to say the format I truly enjoy and the way that it's been covered uh, in recent years since they adopted uh, the process is the Nürburgring 24 hours, the two-lap sprint shootout. Every car in the top 20 gets uh, two laps two flying laps to do the best they possibly can at around one of the most demanding tracks 
on planet Earth. And we've got another of the most demanding tracks on planet Earth in Le Mans. I think that would be a televisual feast. And the track side, with what we've now got available in terms of the ability to track it on live timing, on your streaming media device, I think that could be something pretty special. I agree with you, MP. I'd like to see them take another look. The premise, I think, is correct. The formatting, not quite there. Well... We uh, let me take a look. How far in are we, Graham, on our recording so far? Uh, we've a, we've knocked out two questions at about thirty-ish uh, minutes. We should go faster. Uh, okay, we're gonna go to where we're we gonna go. We're gonna go to Jordan Hopwood. Let's just say overnight, every single Mark that has ever had a factory effort at Le Mans and is still a functioning company today, all decided to come back to the event next year. Let's say the year is 2023 and all the manufacturers entered the hypercar class with the two-car effort. This includes brands like Lancia, Alfa Romeo, Graham's beloved Jaguars, and even Bugatti and a lot more. Let's assume each manufacturer would have sufficient funds so, that, so they would all have the potential of being competitive. How many manufacturers would be there and who would you put your money on for the win? Uh, well, the answer is, uh, look at the world of automotive. Discount companies that have come to the fore probably in about the last 20 or 30 years. And most everybody else has almost certainly had a factory entry at some point at the Le Mans 24 hours, including some very old companies indeed. So the answer is, you'd be rammed chock full and there wouldn't be enough spaces in the 62-car uh, grid at Le Mans. Who would win? Porsche. There we go. Uh, End of story. <laughs> we're going to go to Damien. No, we're going to go to Doogie Davies. Doogie Davies, Hauser, MD. Uh, with the announcement of Rebellion teaming up with Peugeot, what does this mean for the TVR sponsorship and connection? Will TVR look to sponsor another hypercar LMP program? Also, with Peugeot not coming online for the first two seasons, will Rebellion take this time off or compete with a grandfathered LMP car? A good question, Doogie. So the answer on the grandfather Dylan Peacock, that decision has not yet been made. Um, since you put the question in, I've uh, put uh, online most of the interview that uh, I did at Bahrain with uh, Hugh Deshonak. Um I'll be sending the uh, recording of that for potentially a Inside the Sports Car Paddock special with Hugh Deshonak in a unique position to to comment on a number of things. Uh, involvement LMP1 hybrid with, of course, Toyota. Involvement with LMP1 non-hybrid with Rebellion. Involvement in DPI with Acura. Involvement in DPI 2.0 with two as yet unnamed additional factories to DPI. And of course, the builder of the predominant LMP2 car on the planet, the Orica 07. He has some very, very interesting things to say. Uh, so decision on the rebellion for next year and beyond before we get to hypercar has not yet been taken. That I'm told will be taken pretty early in the new year. Uh, what's it mean for the future of the TVR sponsorship connection? It basically means that they're going to have to take, go to the car in the garage, peel off those stickers, and put them in the bin. That's basically it. Wow. Let's jump Not to, really a lot of involvement. No, let's jump to Damien Peachman. He says, when the hypercar regulations start, what are the likely roles of uh, Kenti Yamashita and Thomas Laurent? Uh, very, very good question, Damien. So those who aren't uh, familiar with either Yamashita-san or Thomas Laurent, Thomas Laurent, of course, emerging talent French um, 
driver, came in through LMP3, through the Asia Le Mans series, rapidly progressed up the order, was part of the Rebellion LMP1 efforts uh, in the super season. Uh, now, Toyota's nominated uh, reserve and development driver, uh, so he's getting testing time in aboard the TSO50. He's been placed by them with the Signatech Alpine team for uh, the FI World Endurance Championship. Kenta Yamashita, young Japanese driver, reigning Super GT GT500 champion for Toyota uh, in 2019. Fabulous, unbelievably quick uh, guy racing this year, funded by Toyota uh, with high-class uh, racing LMP2 in WC, which means that we've got back-to-back uh, Toyota junior drivers. In terms of where the structure lies, the idea, I believe, would be that should a seat become available at Toyota for next season, and I believe there will be a seat available for Toyota next season, that Thomas Laurent is the more senior of the two. Um, Whether it stays that way, I think will come down to what we see in terms of testing between those two young men. I have been massively impressed by both of them. Uh, I have to say I've been particularly impressed by Kenta Yamashita. I think that man, um, a very young man, is a massive world star in endurance racing, uh, just waiting in the wings. Whether or not he gets his chance uh, this coming season, in the first season of Hypercar, or whether or not he becomes the de facto development driver for that car, a role, by the way, I think is going to be critically important uh, in the first year of uh, Hypercar. He got his first shot in the TSO 50 in Bahrain. So the idea, I think, would be, First opportunity would go at the moment to Thomas Laurent. Next opportunity would go to Yamashita-san. Let's wait and see what happens when we get to Silverstone uh, just later this year. That is the first usage. No, might even be the second. Let's wait Sorry, and see. I think You've it was got the one. I, I'm going to have to stop that, aren't I? Yeah. New Year's resolution. Yeah, We'll wait and see. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go to Clark Haddon. Hey, MP, I heard a rumor that the Aston Martin hypercars are being designed not only by Multimatic, but with Adrian Newey. Thoughts on this? Happy holidays. Love the podcasts. To work. Uh, well, the answer is absolutely it's an Adrian New design. So Adrian um, basically put his thinking cap on. Lots of the Effectively, he's the father of the Valkyrie, without a shadow of a doubt. In particular, the road car version of that. Multimatic's role here is principally around the race car version of the Valkyrie, which we've seen nothing as yet. So everything you've seen so far, the YouTube videos um, at the Grand Prix with the car lapping slowly with Chris Goodwin at the wheel, the YouTube videos with Darren Turner lapping the South Circuit at uh, Silverstone recently in the rain uh, rather more quickly. That is the road-going version of the Valkyrie in its developmental stage. In parallel with that, the parallel program with the non-hybrid version, because the road car version indeed does, um, is Multimatic's role in developing that car as a raceable hypercar. Aided and abetted, by the way, we found out last week by none other than Dan Sayers, who stepped down as technical director at ProDrive and has moved across to... Uh, Red Bull Advanced Technologies, RBAT as it's known, uh, which is the uh, the angle, the part of the Red Bull Racing Empire that deals with their other programs. So Mr. Sayers' uh, role is effectively liaison between the two design teams, road and race uh, teams. But in terms of sorting it out in your own uh, head there, Clark, road car 
very much Adrian Newey. Race car, very much Multimatic. Is there going to be crossover between the two? Inevitably, but that's basically the way that things stand. We are going to move to Daniel Summerskill. How likely is it that Yen Magnuson will compete full-time in the FIWC in 2020-2021? Could you see him being in hypercar or is LMP2 more likely? Hashtag me personally. I can't see him being in GTE due to his previous status at Corvette. Uh, well, I can tell you, certainly you'll be aware by now, he tested with High Class Racing, second uh, mention for that little team uh, in the show so far. Um, tested with them at Bahrain, uh, thoroughly enjoyed himself, uh, gave some telling comments about trying to drive an LMP car like a GTE, knows where he's going wrong, knows where the speed is, and I believe him. Uh, I think the answer is there is potential for Jan to be in a LMP2 car for a full season. Whether or not that is in the WEC or whether or not that's in the LMS uh, remains to be seen. Um, more to come, by the way, on the shape of the grid in the LMS. But I'm going to use the word right now, extraordinary. Extraordinary grid coming together for the LMS next season. Uh, but Jan Magnussen, uh, joyful thing to see him back in a race car and thoroughly enjoying himself. He's made it very clear that his medium-term goal is that whatever program is put together, whether or not it becomes WEC or it becomes LMS, that his medium-term goal is to compete at the Le Mans 24 Hours with his son, Kevin. Um, and doing so in a Danish team, I'm sure, would be the icing on the cake, and that's uh, what uh, high-class racing are. But uh, do I expect to see Jan in a full-season effort somewhere? Yes, I do. Um, is that deal done? No, it's not. Uh, but it's not a million miles away. Think of the song Million Miles Away from the somewhat local band, The Plimsolls, from the 1980s, for <laughs> no particular reason. James Counter, I'll grab this one. Jim Glickenhouse is planning on driving the race car from Le Mans to Paris after the race. Would you want to be in that car, given the amount of sweat and other bodily fluids that will have been left in it from 24 hours of racing? James, I don't know what you think my daily experience is like, but it's that car would not be too dissimilar from a 10-minute drive uh, in my little <laughs> car. So uh, no issues there whatsoever. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to our pal Stathis Coco. says, we are in a situation where I think Rebellion isn't taking 100% of the car. Also, Janetta is slower uh, than we believed and very inconsistent. Are the privateers planning aero or mechanical upgrades? He says the rookie test was... Great opportunity for Janetta, but sadly, they did not take part. What's the plan going forward for them now? Uh, I can answer most of that. So the answer, I think, uh, with here's the here's the oddness. With success um, handicap in place, there's no real incentive to do much, by the way, of development on those cars. And I think that, in part, was planned as part of that uh, process to try to cut down the costs. So I don't think we're going to see very much from either of those two teams in terms of development. There are tweaks, without a shadow of a doubt. AR technical partners with Janetta, Gibson, of course, working their magic on the Gibson V8, the 4.5-litre V8 um, that uh, is in the, the back of the Rebellion. There was a second Rebellion, of course, for Spa and Le Mans. There might well be a third Janetta to bolster that grid uh, as well. So what are we looking at in terms of uh, development? Might be something for... Le Mans. Did notice, by the way, on Facebook yesterday, uh, Andy Lewis, who's the man that designed the Janetta LMP1, 
And for that matter, the forthcoming Ginetta LMP3 car uh, announcing that his, at the end of his time at Ginetta, he's returning to Williams Formula One, uh, one would guess, in an attempt to rejuvenate the fortunes of that once dominant team. Now, you know, something of a kind of back of the grid uh, feature. So uh, I'm expecting to see wild uh, developments on either. No, I'm not. I'm expecting to see steady bits and pieces improving. Yes, we've already seen that, albeit not necessarily terribly obvious to the casual viewer. Uh, things like, you know, fairly, fairly significant improvements to the Ginetta in terms of brake cooling, where they were really struggling at the start of the season, uh, did not have those issues at uh, Bahrain had a whole different set of issues, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think we're going to see things moving on radically. But that, as I say, I think is down to the success handicap system. Let's go to Trawavasaurus. How do you think Monsieur Beaumanil can improve via his position at the ACO technical side? Their communication of what they're doing to the average WC fan says, as an example, there's a lot of confusion with the success penalty calculation, especially in how the cap is applied. Now the class is diverging in points scored. says, the technical side of the sport has a lot of impact on results. And I think that the journalists covering it have to explain and clarify uh, is wasting a lot of your time, the amount that we are having to explain and clarify. He says, do you foresee more WC infographics to take fans to school on the technical side? Uh, I hope so. Um, I, I'm, a, you know, as those who've been following this podcast since the beginning will remember, uh, I'm a firm fan that more effort needs to be put in. If you're going to base a racing formula around these terribly complex concepts of equivalent technology, balance of performance, success handicap, add in your three-letter acronym of, of choice, then you really do need to make sure that the viewing public has got access to those kind of answers. I have a rule of thumb as a commentator, and I use this very often in talking to uh, race organizers. If you've got a system that takes 30 seconds for me to explain it, it's too complicated because people simply won't concentrate for 30 seconds to listen to a technical explanation. We have seen some improvements uh, in this. So when we are sent the bulletins from the WEC about uh, changes, BOP changes or regulation changes, there is now an attempt at least uh, within those bulletins to explain some of the reasoning behind it and what the intention is. I think there's still a way to go. And I think as we move into hypercar era where BOP is absolutely ingrained in it I think it's going to be essential we get to the stage where we've got convergence even more so Um, for me they're better than they were there is a long long way to go to the point where they are serving their audience and that is you our listeners and we as journalists covering the sports they've got a long way to go before they're even remotely close to the levels and standard of communication that we expect now in the modern era. Um, It's important. It's absolutely essential to our understanding. uh, And as I've said previously to just about every race organizer on the planet who at some point or other has, you know, either picked up the phone or sent a, what I would politely call a shittogram um, to me for, you know, my misunderstanding of some, tiny part of the concept the honest answer here is if i'm getting it wrong and i do this for a living 
guess what, guys? You've got a pretty large proportion of your audience not understanding it as well. And ultimately, that is your fault more than it is mine for not explaining it in a way that I, as a technical nincompoop, can understand it. I'll, I'll go on the record right now, MP. I think a significant minority of my colleagues in the press room, and that applies, by the way, on both sides of the Atlantic, understand these concepts less well than I do. And I'm absolutely happy to say, in the case of equivalence of technology, clueless. You know, lots of numbers, lots of gobbledygook. And, you know, I think a fair amount of, how can we put this gently? Um, People just getting lost in the joy of the technical without realizing there's there's actually an audience for this. Uh, The people getting lost in the fact that, we do need regulation. We do need that, that those kind of boundaries. Anybody that's got a, a parent or a teenager will know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, but, but what we don't need is for that to be so impenetrable that there's a regular series of conversations with very intelligent people in that paddock involved, you know, at a manufacturer level even, that are just turn to you and say, I, I'm actually a completely at sea to what they're actually trying to achieve here. Um, yes, I think they need to take a step or two away and ask the question, am I doing enough here to explain this properly? If I wasn't as imbued as I am in the process, would I have a clue what we're trying to do here? Um, And the answer all too often, I'm afraid, is no. And that's not aimed at one single um, operation. It's it's aimed at all of them. And I'm looking at UACO and I'm looking at UIMSA and I'm looking at USRO. You've all got systems like this. You're not explaining them clearly enough where I believe things have strayed from good to bad, Graham, on this subject in over the last decade or more, is with the advent of BOP in its most commonly utilized form through so many racing championships, we have gotten away from the best car winning. That's been gone for a while where I think the the struggle here in this topic really holds particular value is in explaining or the need to explain to fans that might be a, a lover of a certain manufacturer or might root for that manufacturer. There are reasons why I'll, uh, BMW here, at least in the States with the MHGTE, if you're a massive BMW fan and you got your tickets for Sebring and you're going to camp out and you're going to bring your E36 M3 that you have detailed and cared for and treated like a baby and you're going to drop that into the car corral and just you're going to live your best BMW life at Sebring, root for and cheer for BMW Team RLL to win the GT Le Mans class. That's awesome. That's amazing. If by chance those cars are horribly slow, the communication aspect of it might have nothing to do with the team. It could very much be because of the BOP. Or if you are a fan of, I don't know, Ferrari in that 488 GTE is just light years faster than everyone. You might be jumping up and down going, this is amazing. We we almost won the race overall. Reese Competizione, you're amazing. Yeah. And then the next round, the thing's nowhere. 
Why? Well, BOP. Uh, that to me is, it's a really strange thing to have to try and convey without bursting yep. the bubble because what we want on the communicators side, the people trying to explain the sport, contextualize it, report on it, whatever, is not burst the bubble. We want folks to enjoy. We don't want to have to get into things too heavily on a regular base saying, hey, fans of these various teams or manufacturers going to this weekend's race, because the BOP changes, you have no hope in hell. <laughs> There's no chance at all. So if you are a fan of manufacturer A, B, C, and D, or these particular teams using those brands, you're not going to have a good weekend. We can say that. We could say that, Graham. Do not show up to Silverstone if you're a fan of these models. But if you love these, you're going to have a great day. Make sure you get the best seats possible. Uh, we don't do that because we don't want to diminish folks' appreciation for the sport or to drive people away. That is the accepted underbelly of BOP. And in this theoretical perfect world, which is never achieved, it's never an issue. Cars are just on top of one another, barely distinguishable one model to the next because it's just this huge roving cluster of cars in each class because they're all so equal. Never happens. There's always someone on the right side and the wrong side of BOP. We hope that fans don't ask too much, don't look into things too much and just go, oh, wow, boy, the so-and-sos were slow this weekend. Too bad. Well, can't wait to come back next year and hopefully my favorite car or team or whatever will have a better chance. You don't necessarily want to have to tell folks, and I think we do intentionally try to underreport the fact that unless it is so glaring and you can't help but say, oh, this model just got destroyed in its next BOP, you just hope that stuff gets swept under the rug a bit, not under the, the too much scrutiny because an unpleasant side and uh, i'm always fearful it's going to drive people away if we're too honest about it fair point let's go to what's next barky earl based on your what happened to question a few weeks back whatever happened to murphy prototypes last i heard they were developing the riley lmp3 car and then radio silence it was fun having an irish team to support at that level no clue is the honest answer. Last time uh, I had any dealings whatsoever with Greg Murphy, um, the uh, team's old Orica 03R, uh, last iteration of the open top car, was doing, uh, I think, a one-off round in the uh, Masters Endurance Legends since then. I have heard nothing, lots of rumours, but lots of uh, lots of nothing, frankly. And I think what it came down to is we just came to a point in time where... The funding sources dried up and Greg presumably decided he didn't want to put his money into it any longer. So for the moment, at least, um, that uh, part of the story seems to be over. Uh, shame. It was the sports car racing team that gave Brendan Hartley, of course, his starts in, uh, in prototype racing. Uh, now moving on as world champion with Porsche and um, leading the world championship with, uh, with Toyota as well and looking for... Uh, together with Sebastian Boemi, a record-breaking third WEC uh, world title uh, this season. But no clue 
uh, what's happened to uh, to uh, Greg Murphy and his little team. I can tell you, by the way, that very same Riley that they um, touted around in Europe is on the entry list for the Daytona round opening round of the uh, IMSA Prototype Challenge. How fun. How fun. Let's go to Right Turn Lover. It's always time for Right Turn Lover. Uh, how will the Bahrain result impact the Coda pace of Toyota and Rebellion? He says, can hashtag me personally preemptively put a foot on the soapbox? If Toyota wins the race on reliability and gets paced punished for it, the Rebellion was quicker. Um, it's a fair point. I know they've been playing with that system as well, and it'd be interesting to see exactly how they deal with that. The reality was, after the uh, the lap one shenanigans between, well, the uh, Ginetta, Charlie Robertson losing the back end of the car, clouting the rebellion, uh, the incident in front saw one of the totas run wide and then clout a P2 car coming back on. So realistically, it was almost race over at that point. Uh, it allowed the totas to inherit a massive lead and could run a conservative pace from there on in. Uh, I suspect what you'll probably find is the total will be basically running more or less maximum restrictions at Cota and uh, the uh, rebellion will also be hampered. It's really down to the Genetta guys, Team L&T guys, to run a clean race and run a reliable race. Uh, sad to see both, both of those cars suffer uh, reliability issues. I think for the first time in a race, now when I say reliability issues, I mean electrical and mechanical issues in a race, we have seen some issues in pre-practice and qualifying before, but uh, we'd not seen, other than punctures and contact, the Ginetta's failing to finish. So, you know, a very disappointing result for the Team LNT guys. Um, the challenge is very simple, and it's underlined by how it was that rebellion won in uh, in shanghai not just by being quicker than the rather hampered totas but by running a perfect race uh, and that's got to be job one for me mp you've got to run clean you've got to keep the car out the pits uh, and if it is in the pits you've got to get out there as quickly as you possibly can uh, the speed comes on top of that let's go to christopher matthews who says since the announcement of the race being moved from Interlagos to Circuit of the Americas a few weeks ago. I'm wondering if it's possible to have a little change in the way the cars are delivered. He says, uh, what I'd like to see happen is the teams do a race hauler convoy from Coda, where the Lone Star Le Mans will take place, to Sebring, where the thousand miles of Sebring will happen. Maybe the Porsche safety car will lead the way. It's an interesting one. Um, I guess if we wanted to do the true leave Texas and then show up the week of the race... In Sebring, I guess they'd have to go a little bit slow, Graham, if we're going to do that. And do the mechanics work on the cars in the transporters on the way? Um, I think. How do we answer this knowing that calendar-wise um, there's a little challenge, maybe? Uh, there is rather. Uh, I think the, the issue is there is it, it compresses the schedule. One of the big challenges for the WEC teams, and particularly it was pointed out to me, and correctly so in Bahrain, for new teams and teams coming in with new cars, is that once you've done Silverstone, the car is effectively in a container for about six months. So if you've got a niggly developmental issue and you've not got a huge budget to play with, 
Uh, the answer is you're firefighting um, at the race circuits. And, and, you know, the the point was offered about two efforts, one of which was Team LNT, that that's beginning to bite the teams as things simply just get tired. And, you know, you'll see, you watch as the teams arrive for a WC round at a flyaway event, as the guys are collecting the luggage and bringing their hand baggage through. I can tell you that uh, any airline that's got a seven kilo uh, weight limit for hand baggage is being royally ripped off by most of the WC, because I've seen all sorts come out of hand baggage um, for one of those flights. Uh, major components of race cars being kind of brought in. Um, to just make, basically make sure that general running maintenance and for that matter, uh, developmental stuff uh, is brought along. So um, I think it's a great idea. The problem is, what do you do with the cars when they arrive at Sebring? Because I think I'm right. That's about a two-day drive, MP, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, actually, it, it, in fairness, with a, with, with a truck, probably three to four days, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's not only that. I'm just more thinking... The Coda race is over on February 23rd. Uh, Correct. The 1,000 Miles of Sebring starts on March 20th. So there's about a, you know, a roughly month. a month between. So, um, yeah, if we're going to do the convoy, uh, maybe they stop in Alabama and do the preparing <laughs> and then roll in. Just then, yeah, take things slow there. Um, maybe head to uh, New Orleans or something, have some fun time there. And then roll in race week because, yeah, there's certainly going to be too much of a time span. Well, how's this? They could do a transporter parade. The problem is they'd show up in Sebring and no one would be there to know or care. So, yeah. But, yeah, other than that, I'm 100% perfect, perfect plan. Uh, let's see. Where else should we go on the Weckasm Elms A code? Knowing that we have many, many. And how soon, Graham, should we go to another topic? Knowing that we're going to split this episode into two, you know what? Let's let's can this one here. Let's do a couple of IMSA questions and finish this one with uh, a roundup of a couple of the questions from our fun and general. Because we're going to get through, I think, most of these questions in the sort of three hours across the two shows that we've given ourselves. So let's have a, a couple of IMSA questions, which means it's my turn, and uh, I'm going to start this one out with Ed Duras, Marshall. Excellent podcast with Jeff Brown. Is it possible that the same kinds of second-level BOP issues the Ligier had are also driving Cadillac from the sports? Specifically, the car can't, can't find happy BOP-ness uh, to compete with the Acuras and Cadillacs because the Delara isn't as good as the Orica and the revised Multimatic. Jim is not interested in fixing it. Also, does this discussion act as an exclamation point on just how good the Orica LMP2 chassis is? Uh, no and no. I would not say that there's any limitations on the Delara whatsoever. Uh, the Delara, which is the underpinnings of the Cadillac, Ed, we just have something where it was so good that IMSA continually took things away from it, even to the point of politely insisting that a smaller motor be developed and brought back for the second year of running it. Um there's plenty within the Cadillac package for it to be front-running at all times. Uh, I mean, heck, if we look at how the 2019 season went, Graham, uh, they opened in a very happy and strong place and closed in a very happy and strong place. Obviously, they did not have the dominant season that they did 
in 2018 or 2017, but we also have a stronger Mazda program. Certainly had some BOP help to bring them to the fore and then Acura Team Penske in their second season. And that car is always very good. Certainly not the friendliest on tires, though. Uh, That is a car that rear tires in particular just have been a high con- higher consumption item than expected. So no doubt that among LMP2 models, Ed, the Areca 07 is the clear standout performer, even to the point where United Autosports, with a direct factory link to Liget, has moved to the 07. Uh, but if we just look at the fact that we have a Cadillac that has been pulled back in so many different ways for uh, it to not dominate that just tells me that, indeed, we have a situation where the car could still be uh, incredibly strong. I mean, it won four out of the ten IMSA races this year. It won three of the four endurance races, and it won one of the two street courses. So the BOP effects, while significant, certainly a case, I mean, and it was just choked to death, frankly, after uh, Sebring, the Long Beach win was still a, how the heck did you do that? It wasn't won by uh, BOP being tilted in their favor. But they were strangulated for the majority of the season. Uh, the worst examples of BOP and talking about when a series gets it wrong, all points to Cadillac in 2019. That is the story. That's the thing. Again, we're not going to rehash all this, but there were two meetings, one where uh, team owners banded together and met with IMSA and said, Cadillac team owners and said, this is garbage. Fix it now. And then Cadillac, as a manufacturer, had a separate meeting saying, we need to get this fixed. And magically, all of a sudden, cars that couldn't get out of their own way across the summer ended up being far more competitive at Laguna Seca and then extremely competitive to close the year at Petit Le Mans, winning at Road Atlanta. So, yeah, uh, I don't see this as any sort of limitation side, Ed, for the Cadillac slash Delara. Uh, the Areca, again, definitely very, very good. But I would also put down Team Penske's ability <clears throat> and Acura's ability to play the BOP game as something that truly made a difference for them and their ability to win a championship. Not only was the car fantastic, again, despite the rear tire consumption issue, but this is a manufacturer that finished on the podium at Daytona with one car, podium again at Long Beach. They ended up winning three out of the uh, 10 races, but they did not leave the podium from Long Beach to the season finale. I mean, they were on the podium at every race bar one, that being Sebring. Uh, They did a masterful job of playing BOP correctly. And obviously the team also took great strides in their overall development in year two with the car. So I'd say those are probably the areas to focus on the most. Um, Not really sure about the GM not being interested in fixing it part. Uh, I'm not aware of that being rooted in any reality. Okay, let's move on. Let's try uh, Daniel Summerskill. 
Um, how come a driver of the experience and talent of Richard Westbrook is still without a drive in 2020? Hashtag coming from a position of zero knowledge. Would a move to WC, possibly in a hypercar with Aston Martin, be possible? What say you, MP? I was. Inter- I will add a bit to this at the end, by the way. Yeah, I was interviewing his teammate, Ryan Briscoe, yesterday for an IMSA magazine piece coming shortly. And it was among the first topics raised and by Ryan. How in the world are we at almost Christmas and the Richard Westbrook does not have uh, a drive for the Rolex 24, first of all, but most of all, nothing in terms of a full-time anything. It's, I mean, Joey Hand is in the same situation. We're waiting to hear what Dirk Mueller might have. Uh, Ryan is the only one of the four full-time Ford GT drivers with something. But Westy is just, uh, no disrespect to Briscoe, Hand, or Mueller. If I had to hire one of those, if I could only hire one of the four, we'd have to have a pretty serious argument as to why it would not be Westy. That is how good he is. He is a bulldog in the car. He's the guy that you fear chasing you down among those four more than anybody. He's a delightful person. He's got a great sense of humor and he's excellent on the technical side. Truly the complete package. Uh, I, I don't know. It's one of the, it's a mystery. (laughs) It's a genuine mystery. We've been hearing for a while and I'll leave it to you. If you want to mention this or not, uh, we are, I'm aware, and I think I mentioned to you when I heard it, we're aware of a major race seat opportunity we expect to see Westy confirmed in. Yeah. Wouldn't be early in the year, though, but I'll leave that up to you if you nope. want to mention that or not. But we, I know we have not been reporting that intentionally because we're hoping that more things come along that he can announce himself. Uh, yeah, I mean, my general rule of thumb, I don't mess with drivers' careers. And uh, yes, it's uh, certainly true to say that he is, um, if not in pole position, darn close to it for a endurance seat with a significant manufacturer um, in GT racing. Uh, beyond that, I am fully aware that there's another as yet unannounced program for Richard, uh, but not in a major international series, but uh, at least gainful employment for Richard. I just wonder whether the ifs, buts and maybes uh, Shea Ganassi did not serve him well um, and that perhaps too much faith was shown in a potential solution uh, before the realisation, I'm sure a pretty crushing realisation, that there was going to be nothing. Uh, So I don't expect him to be idle. I do expect him to have uh, potential programs coming forward but the problem is the later it's confirmed that you're not that you are going to be on the market for the following season the more seats are going to be filled in places where otherwise you might have found that gainful employment uh, let's hope if it is a reasonably lean 2020 for richard that um, he's gotten good and early for 2021 let's move on a bit uh, let's try josh johnson our uh, favourite uh, name of uh, witness protection program type person. 
With support weaning for the Dallara Riley Multimatic and Ligier LMP2 chassis, would IMSA consider going to one approved chassis from which to build the next DPI from? Hashtag me personally, it could ease some of the troubles with the BOP of the class as well as cutting costs. I think it would all depend, Josh, on what IMSA decides to do with its DPI 2.0, knowing, uh, uh, again, I like the uh, the 1.5 mention here, really truly depends where they decide to go with this next formula. If it is a case of we're sticking with what we have, we might have these hybrid motor combo, etc. might have some bodywork changes, but we're going to truly stick with the 2017 Dallara, what do they call it, the, the P217, uh, stick with yep. all of the exact LMP2 cars that the exact DPIs are built from. If they decide to do that, then obviously there's there's no real option here to go to one approved chassis. I would say I would struggle to see IMSA going this route, even if it was completely wide open. We're going to do all new everything. If we have manufacturers that want to construct cars and they believe that they can sell some of them, I I don't believe it's a, a racing series place to limit business opportunities. I know that in some instances, like we have Michelin being the official tire. Okay, great. That's a good relationship. I understand that. The more we start locking things down, though, you can only have one, this one. You can only have that one. It's just not how the world works, man. Uh, how often do you walk into a store and see one brand of anything it's just not the way life works so the thought that we can try and just apply this wholesale in racing and believe that racing will thrive i mean that just doesn't happen very often very rarely do we see a spec series or a spec minded thing truly take off if one proves to be better than the other well as you mentioned Say it will be reflected in sales and prosperity, but just eliminating that possibility from the outset. I'm not piling all this on you, Josh, by any means, but this is how we kill the sport. We already struggle with not enough specialist constructors, not enough specialist everything. If we start getting into the only you can make this in this series and only you can make that, I mean, the pool of, of companies, suppliers, people, knowledge, we just start reducing our footprint. <laughs> and I know in some instances it's the direction that series go, especially in smaller series, you know, junior open wheel, for example. And we often see the spec chassis route. I can understand that. That series isn't meant to be big and popular. It isn't meant to be one where you're trying to prove one chassis being better than the other. It's just about developing young drivers. Here, in sports cars, knowing that when most folks think of the words sports cars, they conjure all kind of different images of different vehicles and concepts. I just couldn't really see how distilling things down to one approved chassis would help in any way. Uh, I'd rather see democracy be the thing that chooses or that tells us which is the one to use. Even better, I'd like to see the ability, which we did a poor job of, Graham, collectively of saying, hey, We've opened this up to four official constructors. One of the four is horrible in comparison to the others. The second one, okay, it's good maybe, but we're not sure if it's great. The other one, very good, 
but clearly not as good as the one that wins just about everything. Well, okay, that's life, man. That's reality. You know, uh, we're currently talking right now while NFL teams are playing, and many of them are trying to get into the playoffs. Some are better than others. They're on the field fighting it out to come up with a ranking of who is best and who isn't. That's just, again, that's sport. Uh, I'd hate to see that stripped away from yet another area in what we do by going to a spec chassis. Let's have one more and then uh, finish off this uh, this first part of the Christmas two-part special with some more kind of fun and hair general. This last one for the IMSA uh, category for the moment comes from Monkey of the North. Monkey. Monkey. Very northern Monkey. Uh, with the dwindling number of GT Pro in entries in IMSA and WC, GTLM in IMSA and DG Pro in WC, is it likely we'll see GT3 or some variant of it become the new GT class of each series? If so, given GT3 is customer racing, will a slightly modified set of car regulations be needed to appease both the SRO and the manufacturers? Great very, question. Very possibly Monkey. I don't believe that GTLM, and I'm not necessarily expanding this to GTE, and I know that GTLM is the American renaming of GTE, but just splitting this into the IMSA side that you've asked on. I don't know if GTLM is long for this world. Uh, We've mentioned in recent weeks that we've heard of a new manufacturer that could come and play in the GTLM space I've heard more recently that they might be more likely to go DPI 2.0 than GTLM. Provided that is accurate and ends up that ends up being the case, Graham, we are indeed staring at three manufacturers, six full-time cars, the occasional semi-factory one car entry from Risi Competizione and Ferrari showing up, but when I say semi-factory, I mean the provisioning of drivers not budget, six cars, three manufacturers, two apiece. It is a class. (laughs) That's enough to have a class. It can actually be an amazing form of of competition, uh, provided, sorry to mention it again, BOP is close. Keep the Porsches and Corvettes and BMWs close to one another. I would just say that if that isn't happening, if we have a runaway brand for a while here, then a runaway brand there, and we do not have close racing from round to round since there's only six instead of the eight we had last year with the occasional ninth. It's amazing what perception does, Graham, when we go from eight or nine to six or seven. We start to worry about its longevity and health, and if the on-track portion is just a hand the trophy to the team, two laps into the race because no one else can keep up with them. Uh, That I think is just going to cause more manufacturers to question whether they need to be there in the long term. We'll throw in a couple of the quick things here along Monkey's line. We know that BMW has committed to IMSA to compete in 2020. We know that they've obviously pulled out somewhat brief program using the same model in the WEC. We continue to hear that at the highest level, of BMW that racing the M8 GTE is not necessarily a true long-term plan. We don't know of 
its potential successor being readied in whatever model. Who knows if that's an M4, an M2, who knows? Who knows if there is something to follow? But if any of that does happen, we're down to two brands. We know that Porsche, certainly racing's in their DNA. We would expect them to be around. That's great. Corvette, same thing, brand new C8R. But as dynamic as the old, what, 2005 through 2006, seven Corvette versus Aston Martin GT1 battles were, you know, those were glorious with two brands fighting. Wasn't everything you'd hoped for, and the class ultimately fell apart and crumbled and was replaced by GT2, which Corvette moved to. Aston did not, initially at least. But we do have a situation here, Monke and Graham, where, boy, we've lost one of the four pillars coming into this new season with Ford. If we lose another, I don't think this class lasts very long. I also think IMSA has a hard time saying we're going to keep keep running a class with four cars. They just had to do some drastic things to keep LMP2 a class. It's worked by cutting things significantly, but I don't, I don't think cutting races and costs to restoke things in GTLM is going to do anything. It's just manufacturers not really having GTE level cars in the pipeline um, after 2020 that we know of. So I do think, I do think there's going to have to be some sort of GT3 Pro in GT3 Pro Am model or mindset that gets applied here. I, I don't pretend yep. to know exactly what it is in a finished form, Graham. We would hope, we would think. The pro would be the the car itself would be slightly faster. I'm talking America here. I'm not necessarily talking internationally, but is that something where the GT3 Pro Am model, the all of the cars have X percent performance reduction through horsepower, through weight, through whatever else, so that we <clears throat> do have a true on track separation of performance something where you can see that these are faster cars than the other, etc. I'm not sure, but I can tell you that GT3 of all the class models right now, Graham, is the only thing that continues to thrive. Got to throw in a caveat, though, looking at that entry list for Daytona. It certainly isn't thriving in GT Daytona, GT3-based GT Daytona class, but it's not because of the cars or the manufacturers, it's because the costs have just become so stupid. $3 million per year is the budget that most front-running GTD teams are having to acquire per entry. It's... <laughs> uh, I was just speaking with... Uh, who was I on the phone with? Dane Cameron, who was telling me uh, how the... Uh, prototype budget the daytona prototype budget uh just a few years ago just a few years ago again leading up to the dpi a full season budget for a single entry doing all the same races it's the same three million dollars for what it is now to do it in gtd it's just crazy so yeah on top of the economic side I do believe we're coming to a point where having this unique manufacturer-based GTLM slash GTE thing, 
I don't know how many additional manufacturers Graham and Monke would continue to sign up for this. Or, as we open the show, discussing convergence between hypercars and DPIs, true convergence. One accepted format, one formula being GT3, and let's just make that the thing. It's it's funny, Graham. I almost have some sort of vague memory of convergence on that topic being a thing a couple years ago. <laughs> Am I dreaming? Oh, yes, my friend. No, sadly you're not. You might wake up screaming with it, but uh, it, it's difficult to see anything other than that being the sensible way forward. In terms of numbers, um, I can tell you there are two manufacturers so far undeclared that I know have taken a close look at GTE Pro slash GTLM very recently. Whether or not either of them will will go in that direction, I couldn't honestly tell you. The other point to make with convergence here is what impact might that have on existing GTE Pro or GTLM uh, programs? You know, with Aston Martin already involved, I can tell you I'm aware of at least two other programs that could be affected in exactly that way, depending on decisions that may be taken in the next 12 to 18 months. So it could happen very quickly. Would I necessarily have a major problem with that if it meant that we got more factory teams competing for overall race wins? Of course I wouldn't, but it absolutely has to be accommodated. It absolutely has to be planned for. And absolutely, I expect that to come to a head within two years, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, There could be pluses here for GTD. If you've got the really high-value factory programs using GT3 machinery, then the knock-on effect in the customer markets of having those ex-factory cars available could help to some degree. Could help to some degree. But... I do agree with you, MP. The the issue of the price points of these, um, it does seem to be having a remarkable effect in the United States. Would say, by the way, in the WEC and in ELMS, still a pretty healthy privateer marketplace for GTE AM, as we currently know it. And I'm in the process of, at the moment, writing a story about extremely healthy numbers for GTE cars in the European Le Mans series for next year. And there's certainly been no shortage of them in the WEC either. So that's got to be taken into account, particularly when you look at Ferrari and Porsche's business model moving forward. The numbers of the cars that they're actually shifting that are extremely high value um, vehicles for their customer racing departments. Because remember, those GTE cars, new or secondhand, uh, X-Factory are very much part of the kind of funding package for the professional racing side of things. Uh, but it is a very interesting uh, part of things. And when you look at the stories we've had in the last decade and the stories we've got to come in the next decade, I think we've already dealt with two of the really the very biggest. Convergence, yes or no. GTE, yes or no. And I think those things are going to come to a head remarkably quickly. I'll just throw Should we move on and finish... Yeah, we, we should. I just wanted to add to this another fun conversation I had recently on the topic of paying. So one of the issues that we have in GTD is the fact that in many instances it is a the AM driver, a funded AM driver, paying for the entire outfit, paying for the pro alongside them. And I'm talking more the two-hour, 40-minute races than the endurance races. 
but just interesting to hear that on the DPI side, some of the pro am lineups there have had drivers say, I don't know if I'm going to keep doing this because I'm paying $600,000 a weekend for this entire operation to be here for what? 40 minutes behind the wheel, maybe an hour in the race before I hand over to the pro and paying $300,000 for this entire entry to be here and fly everyone out and you name it, do all this to be in the car for again, whatever the the minimum uh, drive time is 40 minutes, an hour, whatever. There aren't that the, the point being there aren't as many folks willing to pay that amount for, you know, an hour or less of actual racing. And so this is where if manufacturers are, balking at doing these gte slash gtlm programs there does need to be some sort of consideration of well can we fit you in to do some sort of gt3 pro level that replaces you know it's your same standalone class it's the fastest gt class but can we do something here where the costs are not so outrageous that even the factories would go okay yeah we will come in and do that that isn't going to be outrageous and it won't be so bespoke that we can't take this car wherever we want to go play with it. And we have to sell customer models of it as well. Something where in theory, the, uh, the privateers who would want to play could also look at this and go, Oh, okay. Yeah, I could do that. I can afford that. Just we're, we're losing on both fronts right now. So where are we going to, uh, to hopefully have some fun here to close the show, knowing that we have five or six minutes. Okay, let's have a quick look at uh, the bumper bundle we've actually got here for the fun and her general. Uh, Lance Snyder, because we've got a team named High Class Racing, and we do in both the LMS and the WC, and as Fuel Back and Go, you obviously need a race a, a team to counterbalance them. If you were to start low brow racing, who would be its drivers? Obviously, you, Marshall, be the team manager and PR person. Uh, sorry, you'd be, you be the team manager. PR person would have to be Sean Heckman. But what other team personnel would you need to ensure low-brow racing lived up to its name? Great question. We, we would obviously place our first call to France, yes? I mean, there's, yes. there's only one driver abs- uh, and a sponsor yes. of the show. Should we reveal yep. our, first, our first pick, Graham? I think it's – we are talking about the same guy, aren't we? We are. A man of buckets. A man of buckets, a man of blunt instruments, the one, the only, first-time mention, first-time caller, Christopher Bucket, Christoph Bushy. That's right. I think absolutely right. I'm going to make, give you another offer, and I'm going to take the low brow very literally, Alan McNish. Because his brows are indeed lower than most anybody else's, and he's a low lander. So I mean, he is indeed. We we we. I think we win a Bushu McNish driver pairing, Lance. That we would. Can ne- you just we would, imagine that debrief? <laughs> can you? Well, can you imagine how many press releases Sean would be writing announcing the fact <laughs> that the team is withdrawing? Uh, before the race, if not before qualifying, because our two drivers are incapable of performing the acts they've been hired for because they are in the ICU, bandaged up, having just... <laughs> well, first of all, Allen would have been attacked by hammers, obviously, by uh, by Bushu, but 
Bushu's knees would be in tatters, having been just chewed to uh, just absolutely gnawed to death uh, by young McNish's little chompers. So, yeah, we it it wouldn't be. I don't think it would be low brow racing. I think it would be DNS racing. Did not start racing because we would we just never make it to the grid. Our drivers would be at war. Uh, I mean, they would be they would be in body casts. We would need the same kind of apparatus used for uh, Frederick Sose, obviously, when he was doing his Garage Fifty Six, where it was basically this uh, sling and 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 cherry picker type system that would drop him into the car. We would have to come up with something for our two drivers because, again, they'd be in close to full body casts. So, it how's this? It'd be fun to watch. We could probably get sponsorship from the UFC or something like that. And, and uh, I, I'm very confident that fisticuffs would be uh, one of the things we were best at accomplishing, albeit turning laps in competition, probably our greatest failure. Let me read. Right, let's move on. Yeah, I'll, oh. uh, I'll throw one at you, and let's it. make this the final one. Uh, this will be John C. Olsakowski, who says, since Christmas is nigh upon us, let's do some gift giving. MP and GG both get to don the red suit, applying padding if needed. Well, first of all, I'm already wearing the red suit. No padding required. And giving presents to the good boys and girls. What team owner desires a sh- des- desires? Oh, please write that one down. That's a good new word. That's another one. Which team I owner desires? I haven't been making up many words the latter half of the year. I'm disappointed in myself. What team owner desires a shiny new present under their proverbial tree for being atop the nice list? And what would that present be? Conversely, which naughty team owners get clean? Ha ha, Cole in their stockings that's a great question um naughty and nice i reckon on the naughty list colin collis um now that might turn around remarkably quickly depending on what is or what isn't unveiled at le mans in june simply because wandering into that garage is like a different world. Now, it's difficult one to really lay this one on Colin because we've not had by Collis in the um, in the pit lane this year for the uh, the FIWEC. So maybe not them. Nice. I'm going to hand that one, by the way, to the plucky little into Europol squad, Polish flagged, um, absolutely multinational team. Uh, present the cars beautifully, uh, race hard, uh, stepped up to LMP2, multi-car entry, will be a multi-car entry in LMS coming next year, investing again in uh, LMP3 in the coming year. We'll have, by the way, young Mr. Austin McCusker as part of the LMS squad um, in 2020 in the LMP3 uh, team, looking to win that title. But just because you're always welcome there, uh, the lovely, lovely Cara de Vlaming. You'll remember Cara from days got of yore with uh, Oracle and with Delara, but has been looking after the kind of PR side and team organizer side there. But a galaxy of familiar faces. They do things in a not a big budget way, um, 
but do things in a way which is immediately noticeable, incredibly friendly, and just awesome people to know. They get the presents. I feel unfair to Colin, but hey, what the hell? Colin, no, you get the call. Total dicks. That's really, that's an easy one. <laughs> I mean, the buy calls people, uh, I've got no time for, other than some of the drivers they hire, right, who, who I enjoy. Any of the times that I've been around them, it's just been this police state mindset. No, you're not welcome. No, you oh, can't look in. Yeah. Get away. Get out. Don't look. Can't oh, yeah. speak. Can't talk. Who do I speak to about this? You speak to nobody. Speak to yourself. It just, uh, it's a bizarre that, thing to have a team that strange. feels like they are there for no one but themselves to the exclusion of everybody and do not feel like they are a member of the paddock. They're in the paddock, but not it's, of the paddock. It's, it's weird. a bizarre it's, it's thing. Just, it's weird. I should say, by the way, quick shout out before we finish to one of those uh, ex Bicolors drivers, Ollie Webb, yes. who featured in our biggest daily newspaper this week for his experiences in, I don't know if you have these things in the US, a speed awareness course. No. So if you're caught speeding, uh, in the UK, for certain offences, you can opt to take the fine and the points on your license, or you can pay to go on an educational course to understand why um, there is an offence of speeding. And Ollie uh, allegedly uh, was sent on one of those courses for doing 52 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone through roadworks in his very nice Aston Martin. Um, and because Ollie is fabulous at doing the publicity, he clearly got on the phone to a mate at the Sun and got himself a substantial article uh, pointing out this. He was very, very um, complimentary about the uh, about the course. Should say, by the way, I had a small part to play in that change of the law in the UK to bring those courses in place. Um, and I've sat uh, not as an offender because I've been lucky enough not to be caught, uh, but uh, to actually sit through some of those courses. And they were actually pretty good, not judgmental, just basically looking to get people to amend their ways. But uh, heads up, uh, Ollie Webb, that's uh, his Christmas present, was spending about 250 of UK pounds. Um, that's increasingly little uh, elsewhere, in the, uh, elsewhere in the world. But uh, that was his Christmas present. What are you looking forward to, MP? Because that's our last question before we break for... Uh, for now to record part two in a day or two's time what are you looking forward to for christmas hopefully some quiet time with your good lady that is the a number one thing and i've been working many hours early and late in this weekend and we'll probably do more monday and tuesday even christmas eve uh, just trying to get a lot of stuff done yeah so i can just pop into the office and post them quickly or submit them quickly uh, instead of having to work all week. Because, yeah, the uh, the routine at home has been one where uh, we are seemingly always on the move, or these are just really long, arduous days for my wife and I. So having some time where we can sit on a couch and do the better part of nothing for multiple days Excellent. in a row, that would be the greatest gift. Uh, so, yeah. That's uh, that's what I'm looking forward to. And with all that Excellent. said, thank you to everybody for listening to part one of our holiday Christmas, whatever deity you attach to celebrating at this time of the year uh, show week in sports cars brought to you by Cooper tires and the justice brothers. That is Graham Goodwin. 
my brother from DailySportsCar.com. This is me, the guy who named the show after himself because he has a raging ego from all the things that I do. And we'll speak to you in a couple of days.